Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Runnings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from Wales in the United Kingdom and with me tonight is my co-host... Brian in the very um, shut-down New York, USA. How are you, Lauren? Everywhere in the world is a bit shut down. Yeah, everywhere is is in lockdown. Uh, I'm alright, yeah. I heard that you finally caught up with yeah, us. Yeah, but people... No, um, what the scary thing is, is that by um, current government predictions, we're about two weeks behind um, Italy in the rate of infections, which is, is a scary place to be. Yeah, and New York is about to surpass Italy. Not the United States, just New York. No way. Yeah, we're about to be the worst, uh, the worst affected place. Isn't there a hope that it will be over by Easter? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I don't think that's. Um, but wasn't that? But wasn't that what the press were reporting? Is that um, there are hopes? Hey, what does it matter? We're here, and if you're out there listening, yes, you're there. Yeah. You know, they're there. We're here. We're bringing as much content as we absolutely can during all this. And uh, yeah, <laughs> once this is all over, you might not hear from us for a while. <laughs> for yeah, a while. Yeah, yeah, once this is over, we're going on vacation. <laughs> We're actually going to go somewhere, somewhere that's not shut down. You know, we got a great guest coming on well, today. We do indeed. Um, she is absolutely fantastic. I, I, her work is amazing. Um, I mean, you know, the, the amount of research that she's done and her charitable work to give the subject of her work um, a decent statue is just fantastic. And, and, and not only just, I mean, she's been making international headlines uh this past year or two because uh, of some yeah. of the discoveries she's made um i remember you know it came up as a news feed here in new york one day and i had to like you know pop her up and say uh hey joe you're on american news now too <laughs> uh she's been appearing on the bbc she had a couple bbc documentaries made about the work she's done and you know she wrote a book that all this is stemming from that might have been my favorite book, and uh, you know me, Lauren. I read a lot, and I know, yeah, yeah. Joe's book might be my favorite book of the past five years. It's phenomenal. I mean, the work that she's done has even found, a, you know, a resting place where uh, admirers can go and visit, and that's just an amazing, phenomenal thing to do, because not everybody um, in history gets a marked grave where um, admirers and those that work on their life can go and visit. Now, for those of you that are a little confused right now by our somewhat cryptic description, Joe um, is from the town of Leicester in the UK, and she decided to do a lot of research and genealogy on a very famous son of the town of Leicester. No, but it's not the one they're thinking of. No, no. There is another, uh, there is another, <laughs> yeah, because when he led with Leicester, I was going, oh, no, they're going to think it's Richard Third. Nope. No, let's not, let's not go down the Ricardian route. They're very protected of, of Richard. Yes, it is not Richard III. <laughs> I don't want to join that discussion again. <laughs> it is um, <laughs> Joseph Merrick that she did all this amazing work on, and, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the name Joseph Merrick, uh, he is more commonly known as the Elephant Man, the late 19th century, uh, severely deformed man who 
you know, gained fame and notoriety in his time uh, because of the charitable work of, of the London Hospital. And then he resurfaced as a, as a notable figure in the 1970s with a Broadway play about him and then the 1980 David Lynch film uh, entitled The Elephant Man about Joseph. A lot of liberties were taken with the play and the movie. And, you know, Joe's work really... It sets the record straight. I mean, it goes so far above and beyond what you could even imagine you'd be able to find out. And, um, you know, she confirms a lot of things that we had suspected. She also dispels a lot of myths. And uh, it, it's it's just an incredible story. I know we're going to be on with her for a long time, so we better get our, you know, stuff yeah. done. First off, um, I should give our social media information. You can email us at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us on Twitter at TAHistory. And on Facebook at History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian as our Facebook group, which you uh, can sign up for. Join the group. Uh, Lauren monitors it and keeps a good eye on it. And uh, if you'd like to leave messages, please do. We'd love to hear from everybody. We want suggestions, recommendations. We want, you know, what what you want to hear, who you want to hear, what you want us to talk about. And and Lauren, of course, wants to hear more people talk about how they want to hear her read bedtime stories. (laughs) Yes. Our numbers have been going through the roof. We are actually picking up quite a base. Now, they're not all joining our group or sending us messages, so we'd like to hear from you, all the people that are listening and downloading episodes. You know, send us your feedback. Tell us what you think. Yeah. Because, you know, at the moment, we are starting off small and we are reaching out to friends, and um, we know that that might not be stuff that you're interested in, but we really want to do this for you. Um, we really want to get things that you're interested in to be to make this not only successful for us, you know, we have no intention of you know, becoming celebrities or anything or having reality shows about us, May, because that's just not what we're about. No. But we want to make something that's informative and, his, you know, informative about history and about history around about different parts of the world for you guys because without you guys we don't have a podcast yeah and, and, and both lauren and i are, are you know we're, we're history geeks we just love learning and reading and all elements of history so we'll do shows on any topic in history we, we we would not narrow it down to any you know we're not pigeonholed into anything we're willing to talk about anything you want to hear about even some paranormal stuff coming up for lauren Way that's that's so and that makes me so happy because you um you arrange all this and then you go guess who I got guess who I got and <laughs> it's it's quite fun because it is it is quite easy for us to get hold of um guests we may not usually have access to because all of their engagements have been um have been called off or postponed so it's really nice for them to be able to keep in touch with you their fans because again without you guys you know they don't have a job to go to so it's really it's really an exciting time for podcasters at the moment you know with patience and you know brian's eloquent emailing skills we've got some really good guests coming up i think yeah we've had some great guests we've got some good guests coming up and uh 
We got an amazing guest tonight. I cannot wait for tonight's guest. But I think we better do our Today in History for March 26th. And I, I think I get to go Who's first. This to, it's my turn. I'm going first. Because remember last time. All I, right. Yeah, I won. Okay. Today in history, March 26th, 1780, the very first British Sunday newspaper appears. It was the British Gazette and Sunday Monitor. Sunday newspapers were appearing this day, 1780. I, I kind of have a bit of a, a nervous tick when it comes to Sunday newspapers because in my adolescence, I used to be a paper girl. And I was a paper girl when they used to have those flipping CDs. Ooh. And I tell you, trying to get those papers with the flipping cd in them through the letterbox was manic and i don't know anybody that's actually kept the cds that came with the papers what what cds did they give out there um some of them were dvds um some of them were music um and it was just they'd i don't know about your sunday papers but our sunday papers come with a magazine and a Sunday supplement and they're all in cellophane plastic and no. then they put them inside the papers and and it's, it's, it's pretty big to try and get these papers through the letterbox I because I was scared that they'd rip so I used to take the magazine out and then put that through first and then put through the papers <laughs> you were, a, pa- you were a paper girl paper with OCD girl. <laughs> yeah I was <laughs> I mean, we're all going to end up with OCD after after coronavirus. I mean, our hand washing, <clears throat> the future generations are going to go, why do you wash your hands every hour? Exactly. And then we're just going to have, like, Vietnam-type flashbacks. <laughs> sort of like the flashback you're having right now to being a paper girl. Yeah, I enjoy it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so, uh, you... Yeah, Christmas time was fun. Hey, who wins today, you or me? Because I used to get all my tips. So I used to be able... Oh, pardon? Ooh, oh, I win today. You're beating 17. Uh, okay, what's yours? 127.80. Greek astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy begins his observations of the heavens until... And that goes on until 141.80. So, boom. I think I beat your one from a few weeks ago as well, so boom. It's really not a contest. We just love picking out things in history from the day we're recording that we like. It's a contest. It secretly is a competition. It, 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 it really is a contest. <laughs> it, it's kind of part of that, like, it's... And he's going to win because cause I'm winning the Pluto contest. Was, it, it's like the Pluto contest. <laughs> one guest. One guest agree. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm telling you, we're good. For those of you who listened, um, you know, there there, there was a, a little bonus content episode we did uh, just yesterday where, uh, you know, your favorite, Physics Dave, was on. And I think we might have a... a yeah, he was. We might have a little, uh, little battle royal going on. Yeah, but it's nerd, so it's going to be like a Fortnite bottle, a battle royale, where there's going to be like an eye of the storm and, and uh Yeah, it's, it's not going to be lie. pretty. Have you ever played Fortnite? I, I have not. My nephews do. He's not very good at it, but he tries. 
See, I'm too old for that kind of nerd stuff because, I, you know, I miss the whole video game thing. I was never a gamer. I like. I I have to admit, I do like board games. Board games, I can do, but you know, that that means I actually have to be around people long enough to play a board game, and you know, especially now with Corona, that ain't happening. Yeah, but I mean, there is there is something amazing about playing people at risk that are tactically minded and you you don't just beat them you defeat them miserably you annihilate them and you annihilate their hopes and dreams so remind me that is my favorite never to play risk against you nope nope always make sure i'm on your team i i just made a mental note of that uh because i i'm a little scared i'm not gonna deny it i'm a little frightened He's scared of me, Brian. <laughs> I'm scared of your risk skills, but I will kick your sorry ass in Battleship. I have to admit, I've never played Battleship. I like, um, I like Risk. Then there's this Sherlock Holmes games that game you can play where you've got to solve a mystery and go around the board. And then there's, um, then there's, um, there is this board game I can get, but it's like I, this board game that I have which is really difficult to get you know the itv series Whitechapel. yes and they were playing a board game in that hmm. like they it's somebody's birthday and they bring a board game around to their house the graphic designers who were who worked on that created the board game and had a limited edition one and i have one of those Ooh. um i also have letters from hell which is um, a jack the ripper board game um, I have several editions of Cluedo because I, but you don't call it Cluedo, you call it Clue. Yeah, we call it which Clue. Which is dumb. No, Clue is what it's called. Which is awful. No, it's Clue. No, Cluedo. Pluto. Cluedo. I think we should call it Pluto. <laughs> no. It's Cluedo. Yeah. Did you guys ever have that really weird um, game show about Clue, Cluedo that was on telly? Because we had an actual live-action mystery game show based around Cluedo. No, I can't say that we did. I mean, but we, we may I, have... I suggest that everybody goes and um, YouTube, you know, goes and looks for it on YouTube because it was a lot of fun. You know, we had some great game shows over the years on American television, but uh, I don't remember Cluedo. And of course, you know, we didn't even talk oh. about the board game the Ouija board. Ooh, more paranormal spookiness. Oh yeah, I don't know Ouija board. It's 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 like it's manipulated by people who are. It's nothing. I agree. See, now that's something we agree on with the paranormal. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think it's fun and it's exciting, and that. Um, you know, I like all the gadgetry that they have, but you've got to take it with a pinch of salt because they have these things that come up, that pop up in this country before the episode saying this is for entertainment purposes only. So you can't really take it seriously. Oh, but people do. The curse of Zozo. I mean, um, oh, that's just, I, I think that, um, 
a lot of the stuff to do with Ouija boards is psychosomatic, is that people create their own ghosts and demons with that and then make themselves mentally ill with that. I don't think there's actually anything um, like behind that. Um, and it's, 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 you know, anything with human involvement is, isn't a perfect experiment. Well, what are you trying to say? Humans aren't perfect? Um, it's, it's just like, the thing is, is that, <laughs> no, it's not that human, it's not that humans aren't perfect. It's just like, you would have to make sure that you had a group of people that had no agenda. Because when you go on a paranormal evening, you've got people, you know, and it's quite an innocent agenda. They want something to happen. So subconsciously, they make something happen. They don't mean it. It just happens because they want it so much to happen. And I think the Ouija board is a perfect example of that. And it's just, I mean... Maybe we could do an episode on the Ouija board. Well, do you know what I think would be an absolute... If anybody that does paranormal programming is listening, what I think would be really good is forget about... In the East End, is forget about the pubs. Is go to what's left of Mitre Square, because there isn't very much left of Mitre Square these days. Um, and you know, have you seen it on the paranormal showings shows, you know, the connect camera for the Xbox 360? Yes. Some people have hacked into one of those so it can project movement and, and, and figures and anomalies is if they went to Mitre Square and did some atmospheric testing, because that would be the only place that you would presumably get any um, activity because that is a place that you can historically place the murderer and a victim it would still be fun and be entertaining i'd watch it and i'd listen to a podcast about it but probably not gonna buy it i i would definitely uh, well i'm not saying anything would happen i'm just <laughs> saying that everybody goes to the ten bells and everybody goes to the church and everybody goes to this place and that place and say it's definitely haunted and it's like no no the end any you know the only place that you would necessarily get a haunting or an impression of a haunting because you know stone tape theory is a thing it, it is a scientifically proved thing yes um, you know, the only place that you would get something like that is Mighty Square. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be the I'd be that'd be the most interesting place to see them do something like this. And, and like you said, it's almost completely gone. When I was there last time, which was 2011, I think it's been that long. Um, maybe 2009. Then. You know, Mitre Square was already starting to disappear. But at least it was still there. But, uh, yeah, you've shown me pictures of what it's like now. It's un it's unrecognizable. Yeah, it's very difficult. Like, you come across it, you can get easily lost. It's easier to find now because there is a plaque to Catherine Eddowes there. Yeah, there wasn't when I was there. Uh, but we actually have to get ready to go on to our guest now because I have Joe on the line. and Ah, and yes, I, well, I, I am sorry, but no, that's... absolutely, no, 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 no. And... Joe, Joseph is Joseph is connected to the um, 
is connected to the East End, and he is connected to Whitechapel High Street as well. So, absolutely, very, very directly, and uh, very directly linked. And we'll get into all that as well with Joe. So, let me bring on Joe. I'm so happy Joe Mangovan is here. Thank you so much. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings. Thank you. Now, you have been one busy person this past couple (laughs) of years. And and I'm so thrilled you agreed to join us because when we came up with the idea of doing the show, me and Lauren each put together a wish list of guests that we wanted. And you were on the top of my list. So... (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> you might regret that. <laughs> no, no. You see, I, I said before you came on that um, your book, and I am an absolute reading fanatic. I read probably two to three books a week when I'm not writing one. <laughs> and <laughs> your book has been my favorite book hands down of the past five years. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Oh, thanks. Thank you. No, thank you. So, if you could give a little background of how you became so involved in Joseph's life. Oh, crikey. Um, Everybody asks me that, and my answer is, I don't know. And I really, really don't. Um, It's it's a really hard question to answer, because I obviously live in the same town as Joseph. Um, always been grown up with the stories of him and it was all it was um, was a friend that put up her Facebook group about Joseph Merrick and I just started posting little bits I'd found and um, it just grew from there Um, then I started looking at more things to do with Joseph in Leicester and Victorian history and I wanted then I started wanting to find out more about Joseph in his actual hometown rather than London which we all think we know about and I just started going deeper and deeper into Josie's life in his actual hometown and his family. And it just grew from there. That that was it. And it just grew and grew. And, and I love that you said that we think we know about because so much of what the general public knows of Joseph or thinks they know about Joseph stems from uh, oh. the play or even more so the David Lynch film from 1980, which is a fantastic film, but takes takes a lot of license. Mm. It is a fantastic film, and I think any film or any miniseries, anything that sparks somebody's imagination or interest is great, no matter how far-fetched it is. Um, And I must admit, when I was writing my book, and when I got to the London bit, it was like, everybody knows what went on in London. And it wasn't until I started getting deeper and deeper, especially into the lives of the showmen, you start to realise that actually it wasn't true. You know, yes, some people were abused and like, you know, people are nowadays, but his story was not true. And the more and more I got into that, the more you realise it and the more that you realise that Joseph was, as he says in the film, a human being. And you start seeing him as a person and also the showman as people not just characters in a in a film um so yeah that that was to i don't know but to find out the truth was rather was very exciting very exciting indeed and what's truly amazing about your book is 
you know, the, the, the myths of Joseph being this um, naive, almost imbecilic, childlike character who couldn't do anything for himself. I mean, your book goes to show is far from the truth. I mean, he was, you know, he was pretty worldly and pretty smart and was really in control of his own fate, so to speak, Yeah. from a young age. Yeah, he was. And this is what I wanted to get across. I I didn't want to focus on Josie's disability. That is one thing I didn't want to do. And I remember when I wrote, was writing the book, um, I would send um, chapters off, you know, Adam, the publisher, to read. And he'd come back and say, well, Joe, we need to know a little bit more about his disability. Can you put a little bit more in? Because to me, that wasn't important. What was important to me was Joseph the man, not Joseph the freak, not Joseph the sideshow exhibition. I wanted people to know that this man could read, he could write, he could speak, he read poetry, the Bible. You know, he went on holidays, he went to the theatre. I wanted people to know that, um, to show that he wasn't this dumb idiot that, unfortunately... That's how he is portrayed in 80% of that film. And I think Joseph deserves... People need to know the truth and know who Joseph was, which is what I hope that I I did do. And we can't blame David Lynch for that. I mean, a lot of that blame goes to (laughs) Frederick Treves, who in his own own book really kind of goes out of his way to describe Joseph in such a way, almost... You know, I hate to say it, but almost to martyr himself more as this wonderful savior. Yeah, that is, I mean, like I said, a film's a film. If it sparks your interest, that's fantastic. You know, don't blame anybody. But it it is basically the only information we ever had about Joseph in the early times was Dr. Treves' book. There was no medical notes. There was nothing from his life in Leicester, nothing about from his life in the workhouse. We only had his memoirs, and he did come across as Joseph's absolute saviour. You know, he made this fantastic, he he wrote Rescue of Joseph at the um, Liverpool Street station and rescued him and took him back to the hospital and gave him this absolutely wonderful life. That's all that we knew. And it isn't until you start delving a little bit deeper into the Victorian times and what was going on there, you do start seeing a, a different life and a different perspective on things. Now, I've never blamed David Lynch. I think it's a fantastic film and it, it sparked my interest back in the 1980s. Yeah, and, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because I'm sure we'll get to uh, his time in London as we go on, but it uh, even the, the, the feel-good aspect of him you know, taking refuse in the hospital isn't as uh, as pleasant or as happy as Treves made it out to be. No, it probably it, it probably wasn't. I mean, Joseph did actually say he felt like um, over the, being at the Holland Hospital, it was like cattle in a cattle market, and that's what he said. Um, I we we don't know what conversation passed between Dr. Treves and Joseph. We don't know whether he said, Yes, you can come and live with us, but you still have to be shown in front of the pathological society, which he was. Um he was still exhibited, but in a more upper class way, rather than the working class way on the Whitechapel Road. 
So, no, it wasn't the perfect, the most perfect situation that it's actually shown in the film itself. Yeah, and at this point he was being exhibited without his own control over it or without getting paid for it. Exactly. But then, on the other hand, depends how you look at it, he was given accommodation, food, lodgings, had visitors, more upper-class visitors, but he had uh, visitors... I suppose it depends on how you look at it. Um, but, yeah, he he wouldn't have been in control of it. He would have had to get up that morning and be told he's got to be seen by such and such and seen by another type of doctor. So, no, he wouldn't have been in control, and he certainly wasn't earning any money. And I just want one more thing before we go back to the beginning. Uh, you know, do you think there were more medical records at least in the London Hospital, and Joseph, that might have been destroyed in the Blitz like so much was? I heard they were destroyed in the Blitz. There must have been medical records. I mean, you know, Dr. Trees was an em- eminent surgeon. There was other surgeons that visited him. They would have had to have made records. So where they, those records are or ended up, no one knows. But there, there must have been. You know, it's doctors did write up their notes they did they do now and they did then so where they are or where they're being hidden or where they're locked away for some unknown reason no one knows now we'll go back to uh where your book starts with uh, you know his childhood in leicester and it's it's truly amazing that i mean first off you found out so much about his family and his ancestry <laughs> yeah. it's just incredible lauren is was just couldn't believe it we were talking about it the other day about how much you were able to find Uh, what were his living conditions like growing up i mean as a childhood before his mother passed away well most people believe that joseph lived in a very very poor very poor working class family that scraped to live in that's how we've always perceived it because Joseph was born in an area in Leicester they called Wharf Street, which, if you live in Leicester, you know the area of Wharf Street to have been the old slum district. Um, it was demolished um, in the World War II slum clearances of the 1940s and 1950s, so it's in everybody's living memory. But before then, there was at, there was worse places to live in Leicester, which is what I try and get across. And the area where Joseph lived lived in or where he was born was new it wasn't your lower working class it was i've tried and say it was more of your your upper working class um they lived on a main street many of these slum districts were behind all these streets in little cottages um his father owned two businesses he had a haberdashery shop and non dealership his mother was a sunday school teacher I'm not saying they were well, they weren't well off at all. You know, they're working class people. Um, he lived. The house he was born in was a basic uh, terraced house where all the houses were linked together. Two rooms upstairs, two rooms downstairs. But the family moved quite a bit. And when you look at where they were moving to, they were moving further and further out of Leicester into the more plusher district of the Belgrave. And the different houses they were moving to were a lot better, a lot, a lot better housing. Um, so 
I don't believe they were very poor. I don't believe they scraped a living. I think the family actually lived for the era and for the type of jobs his father did quite quite comfortably. Um, I wouldn't say he had um, a bad childhood. He would have probably attended Sunday school where his mother taught. There was an infant school attached to the Baptist church they worshipped at, which is probably where Joseph received his education. So I think up until his mother died, I think Joseph had a relatively comfortable life. Even if his um, disability was showing, back then there were plenty of other childhood illnesses, such as rickets, um, with where it that caused bent and twisted limbs. So I don't even think Joseph would have stood out amongst his peers. I think he would have been a pretty average child that just got on with his normal childhood and went to Sunday school and went out with his friends in the street. I don't think there was anything anything different about him at all. Yeah, and his, his actual deformities progressed as his life went on. So through childhood, it probably wasn't, like you said, even too distinguishable from a lot of the other ailments kids had, rickets, polio. Well, no. Um, there was an article I found about a year ago, and I think it's in the updated edition of my book, that um, there was a, a journalist that actually went to visit Joseph the year before he died. And this article actually said that Joseph said that his disability didn't, didn't start showing itself till he was actually in his teens, which then contradicts the other statement that it started to show itself when he was five. And because Joseph went to work in a cigar factory and rolling cigars, which was a very nimble job to do with hands, I actually probably believe um, the new evidence that I found that it didn't start showing itself until he was in his teens. So as you said, the other childhood diseases such as polio, rickets, even smallpox that cause a lot of scarring, um, I think Joseph probably would have actually blended in even if he was walking with a stick. Yeah, because he did have the hip injury and uh, scoliosis. He did have. Yeah, which, you know, when you think a child back in the Victorian times walking with a stick, actually I don't think would have really stood out. No, no. I don't think there would have been any difference to any other child. And I mean, your book... Not many, anyway. No, exactly. And and, and your book even says that... um, you know, he was a hawker, and when he first went into the workhouse, checked himself in, he was listed as a hawker. And if his deformities were that severe at that age, there's no way yeah. he would have been able to be a, a door-to-door salesman, so to speak. No, I don't think so. And to walk around the streets of Leicester on these cobbled streets, I know what the streets are like. I've seen them, the ones that haven't been, that are still very similar to the Victorian times. To walk around the streets with a walking stick... And with a a tray round your neck with severe deformities, I'm sorry, but it wouldn't happen. There is no way you could walk along those streets of Leicester like that and go and sell your wares and go door to door or even just stand around the streets. I don't think he could have physically done it if his deformities had been that bad. I really don't. Now, his mother passed away when he was quite young. Which, Uh you know, even he described in uh, the pamphlet that we believe he wrote, you know, is the worst day of his life. Um, You know, how old was he and and, and his siblings when that happened? 
Joseph was 11 when his mother passed away, which would have made his sister um, about seven, eight years old. His younger brother had already died. He had died in 1870, three years before his mother. He had died of scarlet fever. He was only four. Um, so, yeah, so he was only 11. Um, but by that age, he would have been going to school. Um, I mean, we look at it from our point of view, it would be absolutely devastating if, when, if your mother died. So, yeah, I suppose it would have been the worst day of his life. And, you know, here he is, 11 years old, he just loses his mother, and his father remarries, and that is where all the problems seem to start for Joseph. Well, they do. Um, if, you know, you read all these horrendous stories about his um, his stepmother, um, has been called the Wicked Witch of the West, or Wicked Witch, Witch of the East, I can't remember which one. Um, but when I was researching, obviously, how children were treated back then, and, you know, the way Joseph was treated was probably no different than any other child of that era and from that class of family. Um, and I know that's an awful thing to say because, obviously, the way we look at it and the way he says he was treated is child abuse, you know. But the Victorians really did believe in spare the rod and spoil the child, you know, we used to send kids up chimneys. Kids of five years old would go working in factories. And I'm not sticking up for the stepmother. I don't know what happened. It's only what you hear about. Um, but, you know, the, the children had to be put to work. You know, the, these families needed to get extra income in. When Joseph was 13, he would left school like any other normal child and went out to work. Um, I know that from an article I did find, find that his father could have been quite violent because he did attack their neighbour when I found that. Um, but you know, so I'm not sticking up for it, but I think his childhood was probably the same as every other child. Um, you know, if he went out, he went to earn some money, and if he didn't make his quota, yes, he'd be given small portions of food. And so it was probably 80% of children back then. You know, the head of the household had to be given the larger portions because they were going out to earn the most money. No, and, and you're right. We have to put it in perspective of the times. And as horrible as it is, and yet we are far more enlightened now in the way people are treated, this was a different era and, and people treated each other differently. Yeah, they did. Could, um, could he be looking back negatively on the way that he was treated because it was another woman coming in to replace his mother and he was objecting to that so everything that she did was 10 times worse than anything that his mother would have done because she wasn't his mother it possibly could have been because his sister was supposedly um, disabled as well and this new stepmother also brought in two young children from her previous marriage into this new family and by all accounts, they were, in inverted commas, normal young ladies, uh, about the same age as Joseph. So, yes, he could have done. And also, she would be getting probably all the attention, the new mother would be getting all the attention from his father. So that may, he may, he may have felt, started to feel a bit left out. 
Yeah, and like you said, by this time, you know, Joseph's in his early teens. He's 13 years old. His deformities are starting to show. He can't work as a cigar roller anymore. Mm So obviously he's not bringing home what he once was. No, he's, yeah, he's not contributing, and by the by the you know standards of the day, you know things weren't as pleasant. No, they weren't, and it was hard. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's why he left home. Maybe he just realised that enough's enough, and he just wanted to get out. Um, maybe wanted to go live with his uncle and probably treated him a little bit better. Yeah, and his uncle, that's a, that's an amazing story that, you know, uh, he, he goes to live with, his uncle takes him in. My idea was that, um, you know, Joseph was beaten, obviously, but he didn't make enough money. And that might have just been the straw that broke the camel's back and he went to live with his uncle. Um, I don't know whether he, he left home and ran away and roamed the streets. Um, that's just what's put in other books. I had no evidence to prove that. Um, and he went moved in with his uncle. Who, by all accounts, was, you know, a great friend to him. Mm. And it seemed to be. He said his greatest friend was at the time was his uncle, his uncle Charles. You know, he was a hairdresser, he had his own business. Um, where, oh, stupid phone. Where, sorry, my phone keeps No problem. <laughs> I think it's my daughter on WhatsApp. Um... And, you know, he probably had the room to keep Joseph there. And he may have had a better standard of living. You know, we don't know what his sister suffered from. His sister may have been getting more care than Joseph. And it may have been just a lot easier to go and live with his uncle. Now, now when he was with his Uncle Charles, do we know what he was doing? I mean, was he still working as a hawker at this point? I'd imagine so, because when he checked into the workhouse, he put Hawker, and he'd been living with his uncle for two years before he checked in. So I'd probably say um, he was probably still working as a hawker to earn money to to pay his uncle and his auntie, because they had, they had quite a large family, and they also had um, his grandmother living with them as well. So he would have had to have earned his keep. And he probably still sold goods from his father's haberdashery shop. How old was he when he first checked himself into the workhouse in Leicester? 17. Okay, so he's 17 17. years old. And, you know, I've searched the records um, for the workhouse as well. And, I, you know, I found his entry. There's no listing on his entry of being disabled at all. No, there's not because he's actually admitted as a class one and a class one is for able-bodied males but with little exercise so he's actually he's actually been admitted as an able-bodied male yeah that's something i found just remarkable when i saw that that at that Mm -hmm. age he was still considered able-bodied um, and, exactly. And the Joseph that we're familiar with obviously would not have been considered an able-bodied person. Not when you see, not when you read books or see the film or see the, the plays. No, definitely not. So don't, that's why I keep going, that's why I find it very difficult to talk about his disability because I don't think it was as bad as what we imagine when he was 17 years old. 
No, and but but it did obviously progress rapidly because mm. even in the known photographs that we do have of them, there's only a few year gap in between them, and there is a noticeable difference. Well, there is, and you think two years into his stay at the workhouse, he had an operation to remove a growth that was grown in his mouth. So things were starting to progress. And then, of course, after spending four years in the workhouse, he obviously knew he had this disability that it drew attention to him, which is when he wrote to and spoke to Sam Tor. So it did, within those four years, it must have got progressively worse. And, and that, yeah, you led me right into him contacting right. Sam Tor, which is perfect because... Um, you know, what we always think is that, you know, here was this poor abused man who was kidnapped and taken advantage of, but he himself wrote to Sam Tor. Mm, he did. Um, obviously, he knew that this disability had grew attention. He obviously knew about Sam Tor or knew about these type of novelty shows that people went to go and see. I mean, after all, the the Gertie Palace, what, where Sam Tor worked and owned, was just on the corner of Lee Street where he was born and it was just around the corner from where his family was living. So he would have known about all these um, palaces and these novelty shows that people would pay and go and see and, you know, and why not? You know, you work with what you have and jo that's what Joseph did. Now, was it at this time with Sam Tor that he became known by the name we all know him by, the Elephant Man? Well, I think he was first advertised as half man, half elephant. Um, this is when he went to work with John Ellis at the Beehive in Nottingham. Because uh, I don't actually believe he was exhibited in Leicester itself. I think it was probably too close to home. Um, Sam Tor didn't really go into novelty shows. He was more variety, musical acts. Um, so I think he, would, he, he was advertised as half man, half elephant when he went to with John Ellis. And then possibly he would have been shown around the East Midland circuit, such as the Goose Fair. And what kind of living would, would he be able to make doing this? Well, the shows usually cost about a penny to, to go in. Um, I don't know much about his life um, before London and how much he actually earned. But most of the shows were usually a penny. But, of course, the showmen would have had to take their cut because they then got to feed their clients pay rents so what joseph would have earned in the beginning i wouldn't like to wouldn't like to say and i don't know no but suffice to say i mean he was actually earning a living now he yeah he, he was he was his own person and he was in control of it to some degree at least yeah he was his own person he'd made this decision and he was out of the workhouse i mean what could be any better than that i, I was going to say in anything anything is better yeah. than the workhouse Exactly. Mm. And he had spent four years there. Yeah. I mean, we all hear these awful stories about the workhouse, and it is. Um, it probably wasn't the greatest place to be. But they, 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 they did have Christmas celebrations. The children of the workhouse went on day trips. And I think it was two years into his stay at the workhouse, the Prince and Princess of Wales visited Leicester. They opened a recreation ground called Abbey Park, and there was obviously lots of celebrations in the town. 
But the children of the workhouse were able to leave for the day. They went on parade and they were given a medal and gifts of oranges and they had food. The workhouse residents um, had parties. They they feasted on um, beef and plum puddings. There was fireworks in the ground and they had um, the rifle band played. So I don't think it was all complete misery. It wasn't a great place to be, not at all. But, you know... There, there was some light relief. I guess that's probably what you needed. Yeah, and, and the, the workhouse is such a foreign concept to, to Americans because we <laughs> we really don't have anything like that um, in our past. I mean, we have homeless shelters and shelters, but mm-hmm. not they they weren't the same as, as, as a workhouse. So just for our Americans listening, can you... Just give a brief explanation of what the workhouse was and its purpose and, you know, what they did. Well, basically, the workhouse was somewhere you would go if you were absolutely desperate and destitute and the poorest of the poor. You had nowhere to go. Basically, it was, if you can imagine, a great big institution like your old big asylums. Um, you would go in, you were split up between males and females, families were split up, you were split up from your husband and your wife, you were split up from your children, you were split up from your babies. And basically to earn your keep in a workhouse, in this big, cold, empty institution, you had to work to earn your keep. You were given a uniform, you slept in dormitories. Now some of the jobs you would have to do um, one of them would have been oaken picking. That's picking or teasing out the bits of fibres out of rope to put, that they used for ships. Um, there would have been um, stone crushing, grinding up stone. So you're sitting there all day grinding up stone. Or there was another one which Joseph may have had to have done because this was actually for a chap that had been admitted as a class one, was bone crushing. Now, the bones were used for fertiliser, but because of the lack of food they were given, you think you'd have probably half a pint of soup at lunchtime or six ounces of cheese and bread at tea time. It wasn't actually unheard of for the workhouse residents who were bone crushing to actually eat the putrid remains of the flesh that were actually attached to the bones. So if you try and imagine all that and sit in day in day out bone crushing sleeping in dormitories in a cold and drafty building on a steel bed with a straw filled mattress probably full of bed bugs and fleas you know next to people that you didn't know that is a workhouse and you could leave you could admit yourself and you could leave um but chances are you'd be back again. Yeah, espe- right. especially someone like Joseph, because where is he going to go? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that sums up the workhouse as it is—a big institution where you had to work, and you were given a bed and minimal food, and that was it. Joseph found his way out, and you know knew how to market himself and knew what to do. Mm. Now it doesn't last too long. Um, his tour. And before he ends up going to the big city. And what was the reason for him going to London? Well, you know, no, most novelty shows, something exciting happens. And 
no offence to Joseph, but once you've been to see Joseph's show, you've paid your penny, you've been to see Joseph, you know, you think, wow, oh, God, but that's it. Why would you go again? It's not going to change. So, you know, after it, it would have exhausted the East Midland circuit, the Midland circuit, it would have exhausted touring around this area, and that would have been it. You know, nobody would have wanted to bother going and seeing him again. So Joseph had to then, or they had to then find another area for Joseph to exhibit himself, which is why he went down to London um, to start a career down there. And to me, this is where it gets truly fascinating with his exhibition in London because he goes to work for the very famous and well not at the time famous but has become famous since uh, the great showman tom norman yeah um well, i could talk about tom norman forever um basically tom norman is the showman who is um portrayed as bites in the 1980s film he's portrayed as the drunken alcoholic bully who beats joseph locks him up steals all his money and basically treats him like an animal. Um, that is how you see it in the film. That basically is how Frederick Trees portrays him as the vampire showman. And as I always say, it couldn't be any further from the truth. It, exactly. With all due respect, all. with all due respect to Freddie Jones's <laughs> brilliant performance in the film. Yeah. Um, you know, when people talk about that film to this day, they still rave about John Hurt and Anthony Hopkins' performances, but you very rarely hear people talk about just how good Freddie Jones was in that movie. Oh, God, yeah. And as brilliant as he was, that was nothing like Tom Norman. First off, Tom Norman yeah. was a much younger man. In fact, I believe he was. he was right around Joseph's age, was he not? Yeah, he was two years older than Joseph. Tom was born in 1860, and Joseph was born in 1862. So Norman's in his early 20s as well. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's, he's a flashy kind of flamboyant. He became known as the Silver King because of P.T. Barnum. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, he was doing a show at the Agricultural Hall, and um, he, had, he had this silver chain, like a silver watch chain, used to wear and um he he basically called himself the greatest showman this was what tom norman called himself during this this exhibition he was doing and um, he didn't know that pt barnum was in the audience and after the show um, barnum came up to him uh touched his silver chain and went "Mm, silver king eh and that's how he got his nickname tom silver king norman yeah, I, I always, from everything I've read about Tom Norman, I always pictured him as more of a of, of a dandy than uh, than this villainous, drunken, you know, violent character mm. he's portrayed. He certainly wasn't a drunk. Um, he was actually a member of the Church of England Temperance Society to abstain from drink, and he'd actually signed that um, to become a member of the Temperance Society before he even met Joseph. He was also a member of the National Travellers Temperance Society, so he certainly wasn't a drunk. Um, I can't say whether he was violent or not, that I haven't a clue, but I, from what I've um, heard about him and researched about him, I don't think he was. Um, although, um, his mother-in-law, 
um, not not saying this is because he was violent. His mother-in-law used to keep a knife in her pocket for the time when she met Tom. Um, and that's a really good story as why she she did that. But I'm not going to go into that yet, unless you ask. Uh, well, I, well, now I'm going to ask. But <laughs> well, first I was going to say, come on, mother-in-laws never like the son. Okay, <laughs> that's just a fact. But yeah, why? Why uh, that? That just sounds like too good of a story to pass up. <laughs> well, basically, um, Tom Norman married uh, a young lady called Amy. When Tom married Amy, she was in the, the show. Um, she was part of a circus as well. Amy was fifteen and Tom was thirty-five, so they wanted to get married. So they had to lie on the wedding certificate. She said she was 21. He said he was 25. Because um, back then you had to be 21 to get married without your parents' consent. So basically, um, they eloped. And obviously that didn't please the mother-in-law. So that was the story I was told um, by a family relative that she would keep a knife in her pocket for the moment she met Tom. Well, you can never trust a showman. We all know that. <laughs> 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 yeah um also one of the birth certificates of one of his children um because i try and say in my talks that you know i'm not trying to make tom norman out as a saint you know he, he did have plenty of convictions which were mainly due to public order offenses but one of his sons the birth certificate says born in a caravan on waste ground opposite pentonville prison so yeah he's quite a character but yeah. certainly i don't think the the way he's portrayed in the film no, and uh, what's interesting uh, is after Frederick Treves wrote his um, book with the chapter on Joseph, Tom Norman actually kind of released a rebuttal. He did. Um, basically, Tom said he's got nothing to lose. You know, why should he lie? And, you know, Frederick Treves basically called tom norman the vampire showman you know it was and tom still had a career and he just wanted to tell people his side of the story you know it wasn't anything great he didn't publish these great works like frederick treves did he had no reason to he just wanted to set the record straight in for the showman's guild and that was basically it you know he didn't make any money out of trying to prove his innocence he just wanted to set the record straight. I mean, yeah. The way that he'd treat him. Yeah, and he even says in there that, you know, he only knew Joseph for this short period of time. Two weeks. There's only with Joseph about two, two and a half weeks, and that was it. No, it was nothing. I do find it interesting that both he and Treves both get Joseph's name wrong in their descriptions of him. Well, Frederick Treves. He did call him Joseph to begin with, but, but then crossed he crossed it out, it out yeah. and put John. Um, I know that Tom spelled his surname wrong. He did actually say, and I think he said it in this one, Joseph Merrick, Merrick, Merrick. not Merrick. So whether that was just because they were getting older and they'd forgotten, because it was a long time ago, I don't know. Or maybe by that time, Joseph's speech was impaired to the point where he was tough to understand. I mean, he did have maybe. a se severe mouth deformity. Yeah, and if you look back at census records in the 1800s, you know, even 
when I look back on my family, my surname spelt wrong occasionally because people couldn't spell or people misheard what you said. Um, so I don't think it was it's anything really to worry about. Not the way, not Tom Norman's bit anyway. I still can't really figure out why Frederick Trees called him John instead of Joseph. I've that always, I don't know. I've always had a theory on that, that for some reason Treves wanted to leave some anonymity. I don't know if he was afraid he might be sued by surviving relatives or something. Yeah, but he still called him Merrick. Yeah, that's true. It's still, cho- you know, used his surname. You think you'd change the surname more than a first name. I don't know. I just find it very strange. And I, 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 I actually like the little in-joke in the movie From Hell where you, you're at the Pathological Society displaying of Joseph and they actually announce Joseph and you hear someone offset say, John, John Merrick, and they change it. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, listen, listen to that again then. Yeah, it was a little little inside joke that I think I think I was the only person in the theater oh, that laughed. I didn't hear that. Um, oh, oh, right, okay. <laughs> I was just laughing at you. <laughs> you didn't notice that in the Being film either. The um, I have to admit, I've read the comic book, but I've not seen the film. I, I think what's interesting about when you when you do go to London and you see uh, when you go to the um, museum in the uh, London hospital is just the variety of life he had and it that's that's amazing that you know he had friends and his poetry mm-hmm. was just so beautiful and profound i mean it's just he was it's, i am quite surprised that people aren't taught his poetry more because it is it it's on it's just as good as say alfred lord tennyson or someone like that's just so beautifully profound well the one that we all read is actually written by isaac watts um, who wrote a lot of hymns, and Joseph just changed it a wee bit. Um, I'm surprised people don't know about um, what Joseph did while he was at the hospital, such as, you know, all his hobbies like his basket weaving and his the letters that he wrote and the fact that he went to the theatre and enjoyed it and the holidays that he had. When I do my talks and I tell people all these things, they're absolutely amazed. Because they just think he was houses, in hospital, wasn't he? He did. He even went to Treves's house. He had afternoon tea with Treves. Um, he so for his holidays, he went up to stay at um, Falls and the Falsley Hall Estate in Northamptonshire in the workers' cottages. But he stayed with people. He wasn't isolated. He actually stayed in you know these workers' cottages houses with these people. Um, he had visits from, you know, Princess Alexandra, the future queen. The the Prince of Wales visited him, visited him, I think, just a couple of times, but sent him gifts. And people don't know that. You know, they just think he, there was this man in this hospital. Because if I remember correctly, and I'm not quite sure, I might be misremembering, but one of his favourite th- forms of theatre was pantomime. And he always used to go every year to the pantomime. Well, I've only got one record that he went once, um, and that was to go and see Puss in Boots at Jury Lane Theatre. Um, that was a trip that Madge Kendall arranged for him. Um, he he does talk about his pantomimes, but that's the only one that I've, I've ever actually come across. He did go to that one. 
And, and for those out there who are only familiar with Joseph through the film, uh, Madge Kendall was a real person. That's the, the character portrayed by Anne Bancroft. And yeah. in the movie, it does show him going to Puss in Boots as her guest. Now, from what we know, we don't know if she ever actually really visited him. No, she didn't visit him. Um, she actually says that in her own memoirs. She didn't visit him. She sent her um, husband to pick the items that Joseph made for her or the items she wanted him to have. She sent her husband. She never went to visit him. She was a benefactor. She sent money, but she never visited him at all. What does she say in her, uh, about him in her biography? Because I've never read it. She doesn't say much. It's more when she finds out that he's died. Um, from what I remember from memory, and I have got have got the book somewhere in bookshelf. Um, she just talks about poor Merrick's died and how she'd sent the church that he'd made for her because he made her a cardboard cut out of the church that she'd sent it back to the hospital and sent her husband with it to take it back. She doesn't say a great deal about him, only the fact that she didn't meet him. Now, we have found other people's um, journals and memoirs and, and, and biographies that do talk about him. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of those? Well, there's Lady Louisa Knightley. Um, she kept a diary. She was the she lived at Falsey Hall, Hall, Hall Estate where Joseph would go for holidays. I think he had about three holidays there. And she does keep a diary. Um she speaks about going to visit Joseph at one of the workers' cottages where she, where he was staying, um, about how one of the landladies who he stayed with when she first met Joseph, she screamed and was all of a tither, um, but soon settled down. Um, she, she actually talked in her memoirs, in her diary, about um, Joseph had... Um, I can't remember the actual words but uh, the most beautiful brown eyes. Um, so she actually does describe, although she doesn't describe much about him, she does describe his eyes, which most people think is the window to your soul. You know, and to say the most beautiful brown eyes, you can then, you start to imagine this young man. Um, there's also a doctor, Dr. Wilfred um, Granville, um who was known as the Labrador Doctor because he moved over to uh, the Labrador Islands. He described Joseph. Now, he actually says that um, he would quite often sit with Joseph um, and they would talk when they were at the London Hospital. And Joseph um, actually said to, would actually talk quite freely about how he would look um, in a bottle of alcohol. So... Whether Joseph knew his fate or not, I don't know. Whether that was something that did pass with him and Mr. Treves, that once you died, we would leave your remains to the hospital. I don't know, but it's a very strange thing to say. Um, so there's a few sort of some people's memoirs that do discuss him. There's also, um, I think it was Sam Roper, one of his other managers. He had um, what they call boxing midgets. Um, and one of the midgets, I think it was um, Harry Bramley, used to say that he would sit outside with Joseph on a night in the caravan while they were touring around um, the market towns. 
and how they would sit and look at the stars and talk about religion. And he also said that, you know, they would sit and talk about things that you wouldn't ever imagine someone like Joseph would actually talk about. So that might mean that, you know, taking someone face value, you look at someone and think, oh, they don't, they don't know anything. He can't be very clever. But once you start talking to them, you realise that they know more than what you think. So there are plenty of people out there that met him, that wrote about him and wrote very good, kind things about him as well. Yeah, I would think meeting him would have a profound impact. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean let's face it, you very rarely in life do you see someone with such deformities and such, you know... No, you don't. Just no. that alone would be, you know, yeah, it's the public curiosity was what made him successful in the freak shows, but just imagine if you were to meet someone like that and you were someone who kept a diary or a journal, you, you'd probably write about mm. it yourself. Oh, God, yeah, I think you probably would. Well, you would do. Or you'd put it on Facebook or blog it or whatever you do nowadays. Of course you would. Because they've made an impact on your life and that we still do it today. So, Joseph's stay in the London hospital was actually not very long. It was a very short time in his life because joseph passed away at a very young age yeah uh, he yeah. was 28 when he passed away he'd been in the hospital for what was it three years or four years four years he was 27 when he died 27 because it was before it was before his 28th birthday he died in the april and you know you know legend has it that he died trying to sleep like normal people which it's another mm. another myth that needs to be dispelled because from everything I've read, and, and from your book, I mean, he died in the middle of the afternoon, sprawled kind of sideways on the bed, mm. and it appears more that he may have had a, a stroke or something that caused him to fall back and, and pass away. Do you do you have any uh, either theory on that, or is there any definitive explanation? Well, if you look at the if you watch the film. Joseph dies at night. He wants to lie down like normal people and go to sleep, which is very, very romantic, you know, lovely, lovely ending to the film. But in fact, Joseph was found at approximately 3.30 in the afternoon on the day of his death. He had already been visited by the nurses. Uh, the last ner- nurse to visit had left his dinner, left his dinner for him to eat at his leisure. He was sitting up in bed. He was fine. And um, it was Dr. Sidney Hodges that um, had come in to see Joseph and saw that Joseph was lying across his bed. Now, my theory is Joseph probably suffered from a stroke or a blood clot. Now, because we, we know that nowadays, if you don't move around a lot and you, you are stationary or you're lying in bed for a large, large period of time, especially in hospital, you're given anti-embolism stockings to stop thrombosis. Now, Joseph spent a lot of time sitting down um, get, towards that time when he was going to pass up, when he was nearing his death. His heart was failing. He was suffering from bronchitis. So he was ill. So there is probably a very good chance he suffered from a blood clot or a stroke. You know, yes, he was young. He was 27, but he had a lot of health issues. And I don't think it was suicide. I don't think it was murder. I don't think it was any conspiracy theory that 
he'd done what he needed to do for the hospital and they'd killed him. I think he just died of natural causes because of his condition. And that was it. Now, he passed away. Uh, it's just, you know, amazingly uh, sad, you know, that it's just, I mean, I guess that I get the, the reason people want to romanticise it. And, I mean, um, have you ever, either of you seen the episode in Ripper Street where, uh, where he's in? He was murdered. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he was. But it's just... I think he'd have enjoyed the, you know, the fact that he got to solve a murder and he got to help people who were different, you know, realise. And I think he would have, I think he'd have thought it was funny. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think he probably would have done. That's the sort of person he was. I think he liked theatre, he liked theatrics, he liked the fact Mm. of being somebody amazing and special because I think that's what he wanted. And I think that's why he read a lot of the books because he absorbed himself in the romance and other lives. Exactly. And yeah, I think he would have enjoyed the street. Yeah. And and for anybody who doesn't know the series Ripper Street or doesn't want to watch the full series, you can look up the episode. It's called uh, Am I Not Monstrous? And I, I think th- it's episode 2 of season 2, yeah, um, episode 2. Yeah. Yeah. Season two. Yeah, Joseph I think would have loved it cuz he gets one hell of a monologue in there. Oh, he does. And, you know, he's, he, he acts the dandy, you know, the real sort of hero that he rescues people and talks them down. I think, yeah, I think the way Chief described him, I think, one Christmas of getting a a silver gentleman's um, dressing case and how he used to brush his hair and look in the mirror and pretend to smoke a cigarette. I think that Ripper Street sums that up 100% when he's gone to rescue was- someone. I also think as well, um, the the policemen know him, but they're respectful of him. They always call him Mr. Merrick, and and I think yeah. I think he'd have enjoyed every second of it. Yeah, he was a gen- I think he was a gentleman and wanted to be treated like one. Yeah, I think he would have loved it. Yeah, <laughs> and I think he would have loved your work to try and get him a statue. I think he would have really, really appreciated <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> well, it it does, you know, I keep in touch with your facebook things and i know that you've had some people be that have objected to it which was quite sad um because yeah, their reasons are quite quite weird but he would like it because i think the one big thing is that i get through his story is that he would like to be remembered with affection mm. um, and i mean your work to find um his grave as well that was fantastic yeah that's that's what i wanted to go to next is that yeah you know history i mean it was it was amazing <laughs> yeah know, we all know that he was uh his skeleton is was is still at the london hospital and he's been studied over the years and i know that, that they removed um some tumors and, and, and other flesh samples that are supposedly were destroyed in the blitz uh, we have the plaster molds of his head and I think his arm, one arm and legs. But mm. there was rumors for years that a lot of his bodily remains were buried in an unmarked grave. And some people speculated that that was just rumor. Other people thought, no, the hospital would have done that because of his faith. Uh, you solved that mystery and made headlines all over the world for it. So 
Tell yeah, us. I know. That's really weird. Yeah, give us a little background on how you solve that mystery. It, it, well, it's that same old question about why I'm interested in him. It's so, I don't know, it's just, it fell into, it's just one of those things. I'd always, there was that, like you said, there was that rumour about that his flesh had been buried because there's the BBC QED documentary from 1990, I think it was. Yes, that, that John said, Hurt yeah, narrates. Yeah, that he was buried in an unmarked grave in an unknown cemetery in the East End, but that was it. There's, there was nothing else. It was like a rumour, a myth. And you can't scroll through every single cemetery in the East End of London. You know, you just can't do it. But all it was, was I did a talk at for the Whitechapel Society last April. And I think I mentioned about this QED documentary. Quick, quickly mentioned, nothing great. And after the talk, someone came up and just asked me if, if, it, if it, the rumour was true, where do you think he is? And I ain't got a clue. So I just said, well, where the Ripper victims are, you know, I don't know. That was it. But it stuck with me. And my friend who I'd travelled down with said that a friend of hers used to put bottles of gin on the grave of Catherine Eddowes. So when I got home, I thought, well, I'll see where she's buried. Because I'm not really into Jack the Ripper and Ripperology. It isn't my thing. So I didn't really know. So I found out where she was buried, Googled it, and by some strange coincidence or amazing coincidence, their records are online. And you never, ever get that. You're never able to access these records free of charge and they're public. So I put a window in from when Joseph died, the 11th of April, up to about the middle of May into June, a big window. And on the second page of these records... There was his name. And that was it. <laughs> that so simple. It was actually just there all along? Yeah, it was It was there. Joseph Merrick, London Hospital. I think he was buried on the 24th of April. It got his age wrong. It did say he was 28, but he was 27. But that isn't unusual, because he did actually get his birth date wrong a couple of times. It said London Hospital. It said the coroner was Wim Baxter, and I knew that. And and that was it. You know, so I sort of sat on it and I tried to find other Joseph Merricks in London at the time that were died in London Hospital, couldn't find any. So I rang the cemetery because I just wanted a photograph of the plot or the area for me. Because living in Leicester, driving down there was is quite a distance. So I just wanted a photograph. So with constant emails and um, phone calls we all came to the conclusion that, yes, that was Joseph Merrick, otherwise known as the Elephant Man. And that was it. And I went down and they put a little wooden marker in for me so I could see where it is. And then a month later, they they commissioned, they commissioned not me, free of charge. They paid for it, a brass, brass plaque with his name on. And there it sits today. And, and that was it. So um, we know that his flesh was buried. Yeah, and then one day, uh, a little while after you made that discovery, I wake up and I'm making a cup of coffee and I open my newspaper, and there you were staring at me in a U.S. newspaper. (laughs) I remember I had to jump right online and message you, look, you're in my paper. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, Oh, that's really bad. (laughs) That was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I I just contacted you. It's fantastic. 
Yeah. Well, all I did, I just contacted the our local paper, the Leicester Mercury, and the local radio station, because I just thought it'd be a, a local story. That's what I thought. But I was wrong. And um, it, it just went global. But, of course, every newspaper is linked to another newspaper, so they take the story. But, you know, I was appearing on Australian Breakfast TV and Canadian TV and had the Washington Times interviewing me, even French newspapers and Spanish newspapers. It was just, it really was absolutely unbelievable. For two weeks, it was extremely tiring. But crazy yeah. thing is, is your guess was absolutely right because it's sort of, it, it, I think it's, it's, um, it's not too far away from the Ripper victims at all. No, it's buried in, um, it's all in sections and where Joseph yeah. is now is what they call the memorial gardens and the section next to him um, is Kathy Nettos. Then I think a little bit further down on the same road is Polly Nichols. So they're almost right. next to each other. But of course, you know, it was in the same era, this, roughly the same years. And that's just what I thought, you know, it's bound to be where, where they are. And um, there it is. But the great thing is when I was travelling now, because the cemetery is um, just outside West Ham. And um, that's where my granddad was born. So it was really sort of nice to go down there and see where my granddad was born as well. <laughs> so that was quite nice. And, uh, yeah, like you said, it's only two years difference from, you know, Catherine and Polly's uh, murders. Yeah. They had the same corner. <laughs> but also remarkable that, uh, you know, I couldn't believe doesn't get any attention is in your book, you, you found the burial of his grandparents. Um, yeah, well, yes, I found, I found his father's grave. And then um, his grandparents, Joseph's grandparents, yes. um, his his grandfather committed committed suicide, and um, they're buried in their the village church where his mother grew up. Um, I found his uncle's grave as well, um, which is not too far away from where his mother's buried. I found all the plots of all his mother's side of the family in the same um cemetery as where his mother is so yeah they're all together which is which is nice now another first off your book um is a must read people really gotta and i'm gonna put a link to the book um in the description on this episode but you've discovered something pretty outrageous while you were researching the book as well didn't you about yourself you're talking about my family yes yeah uh, yeah i had no no idea whatsoever and i have to say i did did not have a clue um when i started researching the london side of Josie's life because it was something I, I i didn't really want to touch upon because i just wanted to talk about leicester that that's just basically what i wanted to do but of course i had to start looking into London and I started researching Tom Norman because I'm really into family history and um, I found out that me and Tom Norman were related and um, I never had a clue no, <laughs> so yeah that, that, was, that was pretty amazing and it was weird because Tom Norman's name isn't really Tom Norman his name's actually Thomas Noakes and when I found that out and then found out he was from East Sussex I thought, oh, I've got a great-great-great-grandmother called Elizabeth Noakes from East Sussex. 
and uh, um, linked his trip with mine. I didn't just leave it at that. I contacted um, his family, Tom Norman's family and his great and his great granddaughter, and we verified it. So worked out that me and Tom were fifth cousins. And that was it. Um, that's just that's amazing. I, it's just mm-hmm. amazing what you can find out through research. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It was pretty. A sort of. I don't know, gobsmacking moment when I thought, oh my God, you know, this this guy who was portrayed so badly in the film, who I'm researching, is actually, we're actually related. Uh, it was, it was amazing and, and I've been, I've met his great, great granddaughter and I spoke to his family and, you know, it's, it's great. It's, it was, it's been a great journey. Fantastic. And it all comes full circle back to Lester because you are involved in a project right now that is, I I think, incredible. And uh, you're part of a committee trying to get a statue erected in Lester in honor of Joseph. Yeah, um, we're trying. We we feel that, um, well, there's nothing in Lester that actually tells you that Joseph Merrick is from there. Absolutely nothing apart from... A little blue information board that tells you a little bit about Joseph's life and he was born on this particular street. There's a little plaque in a community college which stands on the side of the workhouse that you can't see. It's not visible to the public. It's in a locked courtyard. So there's nothing that tells you he's from there. And people tend to forget that Joseph actually spent 22 years of his life in our town he was born there he spent 22 years there you know you don't see that in the film everyone thinks people don't even realize he's from leicester you know he only spent five years in london and we feel there should be something in our city that that shows joseph was from there that remembers him and i believe a statue is the way to go because joe there's more to joseph than freak show you know hopefully this podcast has shown that joseph had a life and he was a human being that had goals and dreams and we believe he represents everybody with a disability because he went out there and worked with what he had in the most terrible times and for us that deserves remembering and deserves a statue in his hometown but we just we just do exactly and and i was gonna say he you know not only is he part of pop culture now thanks to the plays the books the movies which which is enough for most people to get a statue um the, yeah. fa- the fact that he is a symbol for all people with deformities that yeah. make their way through this life uh on their mm-hmm. own terms for the most part i mean the bravery of it and the yeah. the courage and you know he deserves to be honored in such a way but you uh, you've got some pushback on that Oh, yeah. What, you mean some of the comments? Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I have had quite a lot. Cause the worst thing is people don't know Josie's true story. They just believe the film. So basically, I got a few comments about um, him being a freak, and the only reason why he's remembered is because he was ugly. And somebody, um, this is, actually wrote into our local newspaper, the Leicester Mercury, and she's actually from my hometown 
she actually put Leicester is ugly enough as it is without a statue of Joseph Merrick and he was a freak of nature um, that was the comment that has just followed me around and you know, it hurt at first and it upset me but it's actually been a positive because it's given us a lot of a lot of publicity um, some of the comments have been awful I've had private messages on Facebook telling me that I'm no better than um, my cousin because they've obviously found out I'm related to Tom Norman my cousin the vampire showman what goes around comes around he, he exhibited Joseph now you want to do the same 135 years later um, but saying that now since I was on BBC breakfast and got more publicity 95% of the comments are absolutely positive and that's the best thing about it and, and you know you're going to get negative comments no matter what you do <laughs> exactly yeah you, i mean I've, I've got to grow a backbone and get on with it which I, is what i've done you know as, as a boxing writer i would get emails and comments sent to me that were just the most vile and vicious mm. things because i'm reporting on a boxing match so don't feel bad <laughs> anything you Anything you get means you're doing a good job, even if it's negative. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And those we comments are. just show how ignorant those people are. I mean, it's just well, ignorance to... It's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It, ju it does hurt because, you know, a lot of work's going into it, and it is hard work because doing it on our own, you know, the, the council are willing to have the statue, but we've got to fund it. And we're looking at £110,000. It's a lot of money. And we have to fund it. We've got to find the money. So it's hard work. And when reading comments like that, you feel so deflated. But then you've got to pick yourself up and realise that we are getting money. We are getting support. Um, doesn't matter how long it takes, but we'll, we'll do it. And, and I know we will. I'm, I'm sure, you know, during his time that um, Joseph had comments like that, and that they exactly. hurt him as well, but they just made mm -hmm. him stronger. And exactly, and that's more, what I've you know, had more resolve to push on. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're doing. I don't care anymore, and we're going to do it. You know, we I just ignore people, block people. I don't care anymore, but we will do it. Joseph did it. He got out there and did it. What he needed to do, and I'm going to do exactly the same. Now, is there something you can plug right here where people can donate? Yeah, um, we have a crowdfunding page, which is, um, if you just Google, just giving Joseph Merrick, it will come up. We've also got a Facebook page, Joseph Merrick Statue Appeal, and a Twitter called at Statue Appeal. And that will give you all the links to the crowdfunding page. And then throughout the years, obviously, we can't do it at the minute because of the global crisis at the moment. We will be holding events and fundraising days. So we just have to hold fire on that for now. But, you know, you can still donate through Facebook or just giving. The chap we've got, our sculptor, um, he actually did a statue of a suffragette called Alice Hawkins in Leicester. Is absolutely fantastic. Um, although he is obviously we've got to pay him to do the statue you know we've got to have the statue got to have the plinth you've got to have the planning permission that all comes into the cost of it 
there are certain things Sean is doing for us that are free of charge. Um, and he's donating things to our appeal um, that he would usually charge people for. Um, so, yeah, but he's our sculptor. And his work is absolutely fantastic. And I wouldn't want to change him. The fact that Lester doesn't really have anything... Um referring to joseph or making reference to joseph other than the the small plaque i mean even london uh when they had the olympics there joseph was part of the mural for the olympics i know it's i don't get it i i have to admit i don't get why he's there's nothing in leicester to celebrate his life i mean i don't know whether you've heard of a chap called daniel lambert he was oh, yeah. the world's fan yeah he's you know with bits of his, there's bits of his stuff in our local museums everybody knows about daniel lambert the books are in the museums um we talk about his history but there is nothing on joseph and i really don't understand why not i just don't and even when you talk about victorian history it's never mentioned and i don't know why this is why you know I've got my website and I write about him and try and link things into Joseph every time I talk about Lester to get his life across so people know who he was. But I just don't understand why there's nothing here and nobody can answer me or want to answer me. I just don't know. Yeah, they, they, they might not want to answer you. Sometimes they, people don't want to admit yeah. the famous people that come from their hometown. I mean, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and you, I, I don't go around bragging about Rick James all that often. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just, I just don't understand. You know, Leicester's always been so proud of its history. We don't celebrate it, but we have been. Um, and why they they don't talk about Joseph? Maybe they just don't realise he's actually from this city because of the film. They just don't know. I don't know. See, I think the opportunity was when Leicester won um, the Premier League. On the mm-hmm. million to one shot, if they'd have come out the next season calling themselves the Lester Elephant Men or the Lester Merricks, <laughs> that would have done it. Yeah, maybe. I think maybe we, we should really have done do that here. We don't really do that here, though. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. very strange, you know. So, I think Richard the Third's overshadowed it a little bit. So, I need to push Richard the Third out of the way and put Joseph Merrick in his place. Oh no! Then you then you face the wrath of the Ricardians, and nobody wants that. <laughs> oh, I do not want that again. I had that five years ago, <laughs> and I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> oh, the funeral! The funeral was lovely until they got to when he buried when they buried him. She just looked like she wanted to jump in after him. It was oh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's sometimes. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why because it's the Ricardians. They want everything for Richard. Ah, it could be. We don't let me say that. Although, you know, I'm an American. I find the Richard case fascinating too. Don't get me wrong. And I actually got to uh, to do a, an interview with uh, Professor Turi King, who did the uh, genetic research on it, but. Uh, Maybe we could do a statue of Richard and Joseph together, like, you know, Mm, a a statue of them playing football. (laughs) 
in Leicester, Jersey. <laughs> yeah, I'll save my, my school to Sean can sketch, sketch me a statue. I'll see what he says. Yeah, put them in Leicester, Jersey's playing football. The city would love it. Yeah, I'm sure they would. <laughs> now, I do have one question that has absolutely nothing to do with Joseph that I have to ask. Oh, no. Here we go. <laughs> All right. And this is because, you know, I'm such an admirer, I have to ask. Pluto, planet or no planet? <laughs> um, well, you see, I'm, I'm old school. You know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and Pluto was always a planet. Yes, that's but, what I'm talking about. But... Uh, you can leave yeah. it there. <laughs> Yeah, it's also, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yes, it is. Yes, planet. There you go. Chalk another one up to Team Pluto. Hashtag yeah, two. <laughs> Amanda yeah, lies with all the best reaction. Hashtag pro planet Pluto on everything you do. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> oh, Joe, I can't thank you enough. And please come back on the show. Anytime you like. Any new developments, give us an update on the statue. And, uh, Lauren, do you have anything to say before we let Joe go? Because we've been occupying way too much of her time. Just thank you very much for coming on. Your book is fantastic. And like Brian says, you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Lauren, I got an an autographed copy before it came out, so. I got one of the limited edition autographed copies there. See, with a special a, little book play in it. Yeah, see, so, see, yay. We make fun of each other over who gets the cooler things, but <laughs> but I'm on the other side of the ocean and I got an autographed copy. <laughs> Mango publish it. Mango sends things to the US. Yeah. 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 Sometimes, sometimes it helps to know the author. <laughs> Joe, again, thank you so much, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 How great was that, Lauren? That was really amazing. It's really nice to have Joe on. She's fantastic. I Uh, I really do appreciate all her work. It's very important. I, I love Joe, and like I said, she was on. You remember when we put the list together of who we wanted? She was on top of my list. I think she was on both of our lists. Yes, I had her number one though. Stop <laughs> making everything into a competition. This is why people say you're obnoxious. <laughs> because Pluto is a planet. We got confirmation tonight. Yeah, yeah. No, just no. No, it's not a planet. Just wait. I mean, till, wait till Amanda. Um, Amanda Lloyd had the best reaction, though. She did. She did. But just wait till the Pluto death match that we're going to have with Holly and Physics Dave. <clears throat> Physics Dave is going to win. Oh, speaking of which, you realize what tomorrow is, don't you? Yeah, I do. I do. It's when we're recording um, our wonderful a million hour tribute to um mr syphilis francis tumblety (laughs) so 
I think both of us better get to bed. Not together. We're on opposite sides of the ocean, people. Clear your minds. But I think both of us... (laughs) Both of us need to get our sleep. My mind didn't go there. No, neither did mine, but I'm sure some of the listeners did. I could just... Giggity. Yeah, so... Uh... It's time for us to rest up because we're going to need all the energy we have for this interview tomorrow, so. It'll be fine. It's just going to be, it's just, I've got some bubble wrap ready. I'm just going to turn my microphone off and let you try and organize the chaos because it will be chaos. Oh, it's going to be chaos. It's going to be beyond I mean, chaos. I don't need, I don't. Know how you're going to edit it, and I'm kind of glad that I don't do the editing of the episodes. You know, why don't we just put it out as a live stream? How would that be? <laughs> because it wouldn't make any sense, and then the listeners wouldn't never listen to us again. Because if they really understood that, because most of our guests have been friends and we speak in nerd language, and that you piece it together to create some semblance of um sanity um that um that we would probably lose all our listeners and would be reported to uh, the mental health authorities (laughs) that would come and get us with hazmat suits and butterfly nets uh yeah you're probably right so uh only hazmat suits because of the corona yeah we're we are going to um need all of our energy for tomorrow so i think that's about time for us to sign off tonight so on behalf of myself brian in the good old us of a the state of new york and lauren here in swansea in south wales good night good night I was a paper girl when they used to have those flipping CDs.